I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everybody, welcome to a special interview between me and Paul Sun Hung Lee. Now, listen, you know this name, you just don't know that you know this name, or maybe you do. And I'm talking to the, I'm preaching to the choir here, but he won the Canadian Screen Award for Best Lead Actor for his role in the comedy series Kim's Convenience. You may have seen it on Netflix. I know I uh, just finished my second binge. Most recently, you've seen him as uh, Captain Carson Tiva in The Mandalorian on Disney Plus. Uh, we are so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show, Paul. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a thrill to have you. We've, we've had a, a great deal of anticipation around my community uh, leading up to, to this interview. Uh, your stint on The Mandalorian alone is enough to uh, freak out everybody I work with. So uh, uh, we're very excited to have you here. And speaking of which, uh, it goes a little deeper for me. And I wanted to kind of start off our conversation this way. There are so many things about Kim's convenience and your character that resonate with me and my family and, and people I, I know. I grew up with uh, three adopted Korean siblings, uh, one of which my brother, Matt, who uh, is uh, came when he was a little bit older. So I, there's still a lot of sort of culture there uh, that comes from Korea. He's also married to a wonderful Korean woman, and they have uh, a great family. And when I go to their house... Uh, I, I experience a certain kind of culture I don't get every other day. And I feel some of that when I watch Kim's Convenience and it feels authentic to me. Um, mostly your interactions with the family and that sort of thing. And um, I mean, right down to my brother's got the accent that you that you use on the show, like it's that close. And so that culture is so familiar to me. Also, my wife is named Kim, so we have a lot of jokes around the house about, you know, things are at her convenience, and, you know, that's a real hoot, of course. And, of course, we're all huge Star Wars nerds and the Mando thing and all that. We got to talk about that. But first of all, are people thrown off that you that this is your voice here without that accent versus what Mr. Kim is on the show? Do they do they expect you just to sound like Mr. Kim when they see you? Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, it, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, and I, you know, it used to bother me a little bit. Uh, but now it, it's it, it actually is a sign that I'm doing my job really, really well. So I take it as a compliment when people are so shook mm. when they hear me speak in my, my regular voice. Um, it, and it all started because Kim started off as a play. Right. And we would do, uh, you know, stars at the Toronto Fringe Festival and then got picked up by Soul Pepper Theatre Company. And we did a, a cross Canada tour, a national tour of the show. 
And we would do Q and A's afterwards, talkbacks to the audience. And, and invariably I would start to speak and there would be like in the crowd, oh, this buzz that happened. And then I'd realize, oh, right. And I'd have to start. Yes, this is actually how I speak. This is my voice. Um, and I always kind of got a kick out of that because it, it really does sort of play with people's perceptions because they see an Asian face on stage and they hear an accented uh, accented English come out of his, my mouth. And then so they, they, they automatically kind of file you away and kind of go, okay, immigrant dad um, doesn't speak English very well. So, but he's, he's really, really funny and, it, and he becomes a real person. And so when I, when I speak, I shatter that perception mm. and, and sort of alter that, that expectation. And, and some people they're delighted by it. They're like, Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Other people are actually disappointed. <laughs> they're like, Oh man, you mean this guy isn't real? What's up with that? Oh, I feel like I've been duped. And it's like, no, that's my job. My job as an actor is, is to portray this character as believably as possible. Uh, and the voice is, is my dad's voice. Mm. That's how my uppa sounds. Um, you know, he's been living in Canada for 48 years. And so his English is accented like that because he grew up speaking Korean and had to learn English as a second language. And so he's always going to have vestiges of his home, his mother tongue. Mm. Uh, with him and so but he, even his dialect is going to be different than say um you know a korean american who's been living in the southern united states or uh west coast mm. for for that amount of time like he, my dad lived in canada so he's got a korean canadian accent right if that right. makes it so even even within that subset there there are great little variations of the dialect because we have been uh i i have had comments directed at me that you know like oh he doesn't sound a thing like my dad my dad doesn't like, I've never heard a Korean who sounds like that. That's fake. That's racist. <laughs> and it's kind of like, you know, and that's the other thing about the show is like, it, it is very representative. It is, can be very universal, but it's not meant to represent every single Korean family that's out there. Just like every lawyer show isn't supposed to be about every single lawyer. And, and that's one of the things that happens whenever you have a show that sort of displays a, a, a community that has never had a voice or representation before suddenly that one show has to represent all of, all of that community and it's it's kind of impossible to do sure it's so, it's weird uh, because coming coming at that show as a you know as plain old white bread american as you can find but having this connection to my family and mm-hmm. growing up with the this influence of my korean siblings and all of that represented and their constant trips back to korea and, and coming back here and bringing things with them and in particular my brother with with the culture that really never left, uh, my my going into the show was, and this is before I knew that you uh, affected an accent or any of that either. But when I went into the show, I went, "Gosh, I hope this isn't just on the nose, ha ha ha, funny Asian stereotypes, uh, you know, at a convenience store." Like I went in with some of those expectations, yeah, and I was greeted instead with what just feels like a genuine. Uh, authentic effort to bring these characters to life and their interactions and the kinds of um, uh, juxtaposition of, of Appa and, and the daughter, for example, are I feel re- that stuff feels real to me and feels, yeah. feels vital to every family experience in a lot of ways, but also in this one unique way, I recognize a lot of these things and these tropes and these, these, uh, these concepts that to some, they may see them and go, Oh, I don't, that's funny, but I don't really know why it's funny. I feel like I got a deeper understanding of why it was funny, but also why it was 
it was genuine. And I think the reason the show, uh, especially down here, continues to be just a massive hit is there is a feeling of true heart and intent. And um, you're not just you guys don't go just for the low hanging fruit like these are these are laughs that are earned. There's heart wrapped around it. There's genuine feelings in there like uh, it, it's pretty palpable, uh, at least to me. And I, and I feel like a lot of fans feel that way. So it's interesting to hear some of that backstory because I could see, you know, that might be a a thing where you're like, well, I'm doing an accent and accents tend to be, you know, whatever. But when I hear it, I hear what probably sounds like your dad or I hear what sounds like first generation uh, Canadian or American, but grew up in Korea, has this different perspective. And and to me, it's really um, genuine. And I and I and I, I've used that word a lot, but I, I really feel it. From Thanks, the I, and that's what we're striving for. Exactly. I mean, right from the get-go, it's about setting the tone for the show and the play, too. It was never about, you know, we don't play the joke. Uh, The Kims are never the butt of the joke. The the accent is never the butt of the joke. Um, It's one of those things where we want to play the truth of the situation and the humor comes from the truth. Uh, When we were doing the play, I remember, uh, because it was a fringe show and we didn't really have a director and we were sort of slapping it together and we we had to go by instinct a lot. No. And Ince Choi, who wrote the play, um, he his 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 writing is fantastic, and we just never had time to really sort of dig into the into the script and pull it apart and whatnot. So we were on the fly. We were rehearsing when we could. We put it up on stage, and so I went by by instinct a lot of times. And my instinct as a comedian is to play the joke. I want I want to go for that joke. And in in a fringe show, you can get away with that, and you can get the laughs, and it's there, and the heart is there. But it wasn't until we actually took it to stage uh, on a main stage and had a director proper come in and we pulled apart the script and we really, really sort of dissected, well, why, why does this joke work? What is it about? And my instincts were correct, but the difference was we knew why those jokes worked and we earned them. And one of the best pieces of advice I got from uh, my director, Wayne Mangesha, who is now the artistic director of Soul Pepper Theater Company, is she said exactly what I said, don't play the joke, mm. earn it, play the truth. Because if you just play the joke, you're training the audience to just laugh at whatever comes out of your mouth. And then when something serious comes out, you've lost them. Mm. You won't be able to, to get them. So you need to really play the truth. And that's really served me this entire run of the show. It is, we, we try to find authenticity and we try to be genuine and play those moments uh, as, with as high stakes as anything else. Just because it's a sitcom, doesn't mean it can't have depth or heart to it. And that's what we really strive for. Right. When I was growing up, we'd see, you know, sitcoms all the time that didn't, at least even as a kid, I would recognize it didn't earn it. Um, You know, you'd have a very special episode of Blossom or whatever on a weekend (laughs) and, and you would go, Oh, all right. Well, this is usually trying to be funny, but I see they're trying to be serious here, but I don't feel, it feels discordant. Like we didn't quite earn it. So just describing it, I feel like it's it's going to be hard for listeners to under, truly understand how difficult this is to to take something that is supposed to be at its core very funny and then and then have these moments where they're poignant and thoughtful and there are many good examples of this out there, but it's it's more rare than not, um, which makes me wonder if you as Canadians understand and maybe you know this, but your TV imports down here for the last five to ten years have been extremely well received people love canadian television especially comedy and if i think about what is special about kim's convenience and other things like recently schitt's creek is a big deal and 
Um, even stuff as edgy and as raucous as like trailer park boys, all that kind of stuff has a, there is a heart to it all. <laughs> There's a kindness to it. And I don't want to get into Canadians are always nice stereotypes because whatever, we all have our things, but, um, do you find that odd a little bit that we, that we're so receptive to that, to whatever that is that you guys are making? No, I, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I think, uh, is a product of, of Americans are great at, in terms of storytelling, in terms of really slick storytelling, mm. um, from the movies to the television shows, you're great at, at creating spectacle sometimes, and you've got great production values and slick editing and everything, you know, looks so pro. I mean, and that's the, the biggest thing about Canadian shows for the longest time was you could watch five minutes of any show, 30 seconds of any show and go, that's Canadian. Without any sound, just by the look of it, just mm. how it was lit, the actors that were in it, you could sort of tell. And the American production values were really high. And you have an army of, of resources behind every show that's down in the States. Uh, the writer's room are always, they always seem so huge. Um, you know, 10, 12, 22 writers at a time, right. uh, experienced showrunners, all these things. And in Canada, we've had to do a lot more with less as well. But the thing is, we cannot compete, at least back then, with that, that sort of the slickness of the production values. And so we focused a lot more on, on, on story. And in a sense, too, it, it, it's kind of the, the core of what Canadian humor is about. It's a gentleness. It can be cutting. Mm. It could be raunchy. Sure. We, we can go, we can better get as nasty as any other country in the world when it comes to nasty humor. I mean, that, there's, there's no, no doubt about that. I mean, you watch some of Baroness von Sketch, they're brilliant and their social commentary is savage mm. and it's lovely, uh, fantastically intelligent and hilarious work by uh, a group of, of wonderful women sure. who've written these, these great sketches. Um, but getting back to it is, is Canadian, the Canadian brand of humor has always been built around heart and yeah. intelligence. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a really nice sort of higher craft or form that we kind of try to strive for just because we want to set ourselves apart. Like culturally, we're similar to Americans, but we are different. There mm -hmm. are differences mm -hmm. in terms of senses, in terms of um, some certain moralities and this and that. I mean, we're better at hiding racism than you guys are, for example. Yeah. <laughs> we're I mean, much better at hiding it. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're, we're, hey, Canada is just as racist as any other country in the world, right? Yeah. We're just better at hiding it and then patting <laughs> ourselves on the back and going, ah, ha, ha, we're so great. And it's like, oh, let's dig a little bit deeper. You start tugging on that thread and you can see there are systemic problems everywhere. But that being said, um, <laughs> in terms of actual productions, I mean, the United States as well has such – uh, a glut of content mm -hmm. available too. You guys have so many networks and so many uh, different ways of telling stories and so many different series mm -hmm. that it's like in Canada, there's maybe, you know, a dozen, maybe 20 that are, that are domestically produced, but everything else in the States, you guys have literally hundreds of shows and a lot. I've, you know, a lot of Canadians have never heard of because we've never had access to your markets in that sense. Sure. So I, I do love I do love that we come up there though and um, you know film so much stuff up there because we get these amazing tax breaks. <laughs> and <laughs> you, know. you know what the crew the infrastructure up here is fantastic too though. Yeah, I mean the crews oh, yeah. are are you know they know what they're doing and they're efficient and they're friendly and uh, you know stuff gets done. Yeah, and I I love I love that because uh, I don't know it's weird I don't you can almost feel that that same uh, work ethic through the work, even when they're American productions. And then also I get to see a bunch of faces I've seen before 
So I'll be watching, I don't know, uh, The Expanse and uh, loving it or whatever. And I'll, I'll be ripping through that and go, oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> there, are, there are three <laughs> or four people here that I just saw on these other Canadian productions. And it uh, it always throws me just a little bit. In fact, uh, the uh, the actor that plays Jung on your show, uh, your yep. uh, plays your son, was in an episode of The Expanse season two, I believe it was. And I double, I had a major double take and went, wow, all my worlds are colliding. This is too yeah. cool. Um, before we get to uh, more about worlds colliding, because boy, howdy, did your uh, did your world collide with a lot of our worlds down here here recently on this uh, season of The Mandalorian? I did want to ask you uh, this question. You were, before this pandemic, a staple for a lot of people at the convention scene. Um, They'd see you there. You were a big cosplayer. Every photo I ever saw of you on stage, you were always dressed as somebody else or something you'd made at home or whatever. Uh, Lots of sci-fi influences. Star Wars, of course, was there every time it felt like I, I, I saw you. And given this pandemic year, it changed that for a lot of people. I know the conventions I usually go to, I haven't been able to, including local ones. It's been a mess. Do you miss that? Do you do you uh, was that a big part of your you know a staple part of your of your year every year and and what do you do to fill that void? Yeah. Oh man, I miss it so hard. Um, Andrew Fung and I actually Andrew who plays Kimchi on the show. He's my he's my uh, my my convention bro. We would go uh, and and hit all the conventions we could. Our, our big sort of boys uh, retreat was we go to Calgary Fan Expo. Um, because he's from Calgary originally, and and I grew up in Calgary as well. So the city of Calgary loves Andrew Fung, and uh, so we would go and we'd hit the cons, and uh, you know go around and we would search for those the collectibles that you could you could find online. But it's more fun to search it on the cons. I would always dress up in cosplay, much to um, uh, much to my own chagrin. Like he would go in like comfy <laughs> shoes and a t shirt and a, maybe a leather jacket, and I'd have to lug this huge cart uh this huge carry-on with with all my cosplay in it and i'd be sweating all day and in all this elaborate armor i'd wear my officer's <laughs> uniform my ghost busters jumpsuit and he'd always look at me kind of laugh he's like why you why do you do this like, because i'm a nerd i need to it's a con when else do i get to dress up and fit in yeah um and so i miss that so hard uh, i miss interacting with the fans um I-, I love seeing that people get so jazzed that i'm a I'm a nerd and a geek, just like them. Mm. And that's what I love about what Andrew and I do. We go to these cons and I've been noticing, and he'd been noticing as well, like more and more lately, um, the culture of the cons in terms of uh, celebrities, for lack of a better term, who show up, there's a a bit of this whole, like, well, I'm here to make some money. I'm going to sign your photograph and get out. And there's a bit of disdain that was going on between the fans and, and, and the celebrities. And what we really wanted to do was get rid of that barrier and turn it back into what it used to be. It's a fan expo. It's for the fans. And our core belief is really, if you're lucky enough to get invited to be there, it's an honor. And you should do everything you can to make it an awesome experience for anybody who meets you. And so we would go in guerrilla style and walk around. And as the show got popular, people were like, what are you doing? Do you have a table? It's like, no, we're just walking around and just hanging out. And we, you know, pictures Anytime anybody want a picture, no problem. You want us to sign anything, we're there for you. Uh, and we love that. And we would talk to all the different merchants. And a lot of them go to the same expos. And so we, we'd follow them from con to con. And we'd ask, you know, how are things going? How are sales? Uh, you form these relationships with different people and, and your, your, your con buddies that you would just see at the cons. And I miss that. I miss that connection yeah. of, of seeing them. 
um well, you uh and, that makes uh, that makes you i won't, I won't say unique because there's there's plenty of folks who uh you know are, are are just as willing to give a signature to take a photo to get a selfie that sort of stuff but i think a lot of times conventions are foreign you know it's a foreign space to them they see it and just yeah. go why are people even here i guess i get it because i was on that sci-fi show okay cool i'll come and sit at this table but man i better be out of here by four and you know where's the bar sort of sort of attitude about it uh that's a really refreshing thing to hear because um when my experience has been anyway when a when you're a big fan of somebody and the work that they do and they they humanize themselves in such a way that they're you're like oh well they're just like me he's he's checking out these stormtrooper helmets because he also thinks they're cool and i'm just gonna have a casual conversation with him that's a powerful connection that makes all that fandom seem more than just fandom it makes it makes it feel oh you know not i don't know the right word for this but it makes it feel like a shared experience and that that even though you know there's kind of a differential between your fandom of this person and that and that person's knowledge of who you are there's an equalizing experience there and yeah, I've always found that to be at least in my own work. I find that to be really cathartic and and connecting and and that sort of thing. And it sounds like that's that's been your experience. Yeah, it's communal. I mean, that's yeah. that's the thing because I went to cons before Kim's Convenience, before any of this sort of notoriety or or or, or celebrity sort of happened. And so I, I always say, like, I'm a fan of things too. I'm a fan of people and of 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 different actors as well. And I've always sort of wanted to be at a con. And have a panel discussion and, and, you know, be part of that. I've always, always wanted that. So I know what it's like when you, when you really do follow somebody's work and you, you, it, it means something to you and you want to go up and say, Hey, you know, thank you so much. I don't want to freak you out or anything like that, but it's just like, <laughs> I, I'm not stalking you, but I love your work and thank you so much. Like I get that because that's me as well. And this whole idea of, of celebrity still is very, I find it very for me personally, at least a little off-putting yeah. because it, 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 it means a difference in status right. and it's not something that I've ever seeked out before. It's just sort of happening and people, Oh no, well, you are a celebrity. And it's like, no, 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 man. I like, I <laughs> honestly, I, I pick up my dog shit. Uh, I poop my pants a couple of <laughs> times. It's like, I'm just like everybody else. Right. Like I've made stupid mistakes in my life. I drank too much the other night. You know, it's like, I'm human too. Like it's this, this, weird sort of artificial thing is just because I do the show mm. doesn't make me, you know, it's just what I do is popular and people, more people know me, but it, it doesn't, it, it's a weird sort of uh, relationship I have with that term that I, I, I don't, I, I still feel really sort of like, eh. so I always say, if you see me, I mean, unless it's a life and death situation with my kids or something, <laughs> or it's an intensely private moment, right. say hi, don't be afraid. Sure. Don't be afraid to say hi or this or that because the only reason I have a lot of this stuff is because of the fans yeah. and the fans deserve a bit back. I mean, that's, that's, it's, that's a fair interplay. And it, it, it's like, I've always, and I'm still relatively like still on the lower end of that spectrum. Anyways, if there is one, it's like, I couldn't imagine what it would be like, for example, for like Tom Cruise, mm. where it, like people are literally stalking him in helicopters and recording his, his dialogue as he chews out a crew uh, over, you know, I, I couldn't fathom that. And I don't ever think I'd ever want to be like that. Cause that's frightening. Like I, I understand now why people would cocoon themselves sure, uh, just to get a, a, a bit of a break. But right now I, I'm, I, I'm quite happy with where I'm at in terms of where, where I am. And, 
it's always been about bringing people joy. Sure. And and it's good to be, a, I like that you're, uh, how do I put this? You, you put yourself in a position of preparedness. So if, if things go really off the rocker and they could, uh, <laughs> based on some rumors floating around about future Star Wars projects, about the Mando thing in general, like that stuff seems like, um, you know, there's some momentum there. Uh, that could really skyrocket things. It's like what uh, Samu's going to see this when when Shang Chi happens. Oh, yeah. um, he's about to go. <laughs> he's about to go. You know, as high as you can go, uh, and and uh, you know, being prepared for that and not just swept by it is probably. I don't know. There's some good advice there for anyone yeah. out there listening who may <laughs> achieve some level of fame at some point. Just take that one to heart and remember who you are and try to stay humble. Well, I- that's exactly it, right? It's like just just staying just staying grounded yeah. and remembering where you're from and, and what you're doing and stuff like that. But I get it, man. There are times when we don't often get a chance to feel like rock stars and, and have people do that. And like he's gonna be Simu's gonna be the lead. He is the lead of a Marvel superhero <laughs> movie. Yeah. Holy crap. Like that's amazing. <laughs> And, you know, you, when you're a kid, you dream about that. But then he's showing me pictures of, you know, he's going to have like hot toys made out of him and, mm-hmm. and, and like all the action figures. And you look at that and you go, holy shit, that's next level. Yeah. Like that's so, and you're excited for him. Yeah. And you hear the stories about what he's been doing. And it's just, it's, it's so great as a castmate and as a friend to see him get to that level. Oh, yeah. And we're all like, you know, the show, it, it's already been delayed because of the pandemic and stuff, but we can't wait for it to get released because it means a lot, not only for him, but for the Asian community too. Oh yeah. Like that, that comic itself is so worthy of, of exploration. Um, and it's never been, it's never really been done. Like it's always been seen as this, this kind of side offshoot thing. And, and like you were saying earlier, representation matters. And this is, this feels like a great chance to, to take it in a new direction. But I would also argue, you know, um, not to get too far into Marvel stuff, but, that's the thing that killed it about MCU made things so great was them saying, well, all right, we sold off the rights uh, years and years ago to the X-Men and we don't have Spider-Man anymore. Those were really the flagship AAA. That's what you did. So what if we took these B characters that no one really cares that much about? I mean, the Avengers have their fans, but it was never like, you know, X-Men level of fandom in the comics or anything else. And let's take Iron Man to definitely B tier at the time. Uh, let's take these and turn this into something. And they flipped it. They just flipped it. So I'm excited because you're about to get, it's not, obviously it's not the same source material, but you're going to go kind of Guardians of the Galaxy here with Shang-Chi because you're going to see a a character and a comic book that not a lot of people have read. <laughs> and you're going to see it take on this brand new significance. You're going to have people dig back through archives of old comic books and trades and stuff and try to find out more about this character. It's going to be fantastic i cannot wait to see how that thing turns out so very that's, excited that's exactly it yeah uh yeah. speaking of some of your castmates i just wanted to say this real quick is Jean yoon just as nice as she seems like you just want to <laughs> work with her all day she seems so awesome i, I love Jeannie. she uh i've known her longer than i've known my wife <laughs> wow and uh we like i knew her when i had hair and i was about 100 pounds lighter uh she's not nose kid out of university and uh, she took me under her wing and Jean's like um, a matron of the art scene in Toronto for Asians. Mm. Um, she was the one who would connect all the threads and all the actors and producers and writers and this and that. Um, and she is, I love Jean so much because she has such a generous quality to her mm. and she's very matronly as well. Like if you've got a tweak in your back or you're not feeling well, she's got 
she's got something that'll alienate, you know, she, she's got something to help it out. Uh, you know, med- you, you know, a special honey to help your sore throat, or she knows a pressure point. She'll give you a Theracane and she will do that. She's intensely smart and intelligent. Um, she can pick up things that I'm still like blindsided. and like, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? She's like, Oh, well, aren't you worried about this, 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 or this? I'm like, I, I okay. <laughs> and so it's a great dynamic that we have as Appa and Oma and Kim's because she's like, she's kind of the brains of the operation. And she's, she, she's the one who's like, who always, who can see things three steps ahead and up is still a bit befuddled mm. as to what's going on. Um, but yeah, she is like all that and more. Um, she's super passionate about uh, certain things. And if you can get her started on certain topics, I mean, buckle up because you'll get a full discourse on everything that you, you thought you didn't know about certain things like American politics, for example. Sure. Right. She's hardcore into that. Um, she knows a lot. I follow her on Twitter. She's, she's more knowledgeable than 90% of the political voices I listen to over here, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she goes, she goes those deep cuts and she connects the the dots and, and, and all that stuff. So it's, she is a force of nature. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's great. Cause she, 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 she left a real impression on me long before I saw Kim's convenience. She was in a season one. In fact, maybe even episode one. Uh, of the expanse, a show I already mentioned today, but I love the expanse. I love, I love that kind of hard sci-fi. And she played the captain of a ship that was doomed. I'd read the books. I knew what was going to happen. And, um, there was something about her performance that stuck with me that really, really stayed. Um, she, she, she's part of the Mars end of the story, which is a very militant sort of, um, you know, uh, superpower in the, in the, in the universe at the time or in our solar system. And, uh, she just did something with that part that made me not forget it. I just couldn't forget it. So when I watched Kim Scavine's first episode, she walked in and I went, <gasps> that's her, that's, that's her. And what, and that's when I went, now I appreciate who this is because she is so not that expanse character in Kim's convenience. What amazing range and incredible talent. She's just, she's just awesome. So yep. really, really enjoyed watching her. Okay. Now we'll get to the meat of this thing here real quick. Uh, the Mandalorian is uh, huge. In fact, I don't know if anyone tells you this on the regular. I know I feel it to my bones, but this is now considered, considered by many and my, me included the Mandalorian and its storyline is kind of star Wars for me. Now the, the last mm. three movies didn't really do it for me. They're a little empty for me. Not everybody, but for me, um, I found them a little template and not, you know, of not uh, no real, no real consequence. It just sort of felt like spectacle for spectacle's sake. Um, not a big fan of the prequels. Was a kid, seven years old when I saw Star Wars and loved everything about them forever. forever. I've got more, more, uh, a bigger collection of, of uh, Stormtrooper stuff than I should be allowed to have. Like, I just love, love, love everything to do with Star Wars, but suddenly this comes along and it becomes what star Wars is to me. It knew it's like, it knew at my core, what I wanted out of star Wars. And it did it every week for two seasons straight now. And lo and behold, everyone's favorite, you know, Canadian comedy actor shows up in this thing (laughs) and we all lose our minds. And a lot of people were really, really excited to see you in there. And I know you've told the story probably a billion times by now, but is there a, a version of the story you wouldn't mind telling today about how that came about. How did you get the gig that you got yeah. on America's new, I'm sorry, the world's new star Wars. How did it happen? <laughs> I, you know, I kind of fell into it uh, ass backwards. Um, 
But it, if you really think about it, this is literally a story that is like 26 years in the making. Um, back when I was starting off in university, after I graduated from university, uh, I was a struggling actor. I was trying to find work, couldn't find work as an actor. And uh, so I applied for a government grant, basically, that would pay me money to learn theater arts administration. Got this grant. And so I got this and I was supposed to go to the factory theater in Toronto, Ontario, and learn about arts admin. And so I went in there and the theater abruptly went bankrupt. And so they were in receivership and they were trying to save the theater. And I was there and I was, instead of learning arts admin, I was uh, mopping floors and repainting rooms and taking out trash and stuff. And working there at the same time was a lovely woman by the name of Deborah Chow. Mm. Deborah was there. And if anybody knows anything about The Mandalorian, Deborah Chow is one of the directors for The Mandalorian in mm. season one. I think she directed three episodes. Mm, I episodes. think so. Yeah. She was some of my favorites. In fact, yeah, okay, and she's also at the helm of uh, the Obi Wan series now. Oh, so back right. then, though, yeah. she was a struggling artist, same as me, working at this doomed theater company. Uh, and what happened was we we sort of you know Asian other Asian we started chatting, and she was shooting a short film, and she said, "Hey, you're an actor. Do you want to be in the, the short film that I'm shooting?" I'm like, yeah, sure, I'd love to. So we spent a day in Chinatown in Toronto. I was dressed up like a, a gumshoe detective. That was the, the, the gist of it. And she just shot footage of me looking, uh, searching for things and interviewing different people. And just, it was all MOS. Sure. Uh, no dialogue. And then she just kind of disappeared. Didn't know where Deb was. Uh, flash forward 2018. Uh, the cast and I had been invited to Los Angeles to, uh, to be part of the uh, Unforgettable Gala, mm. which is thrown by um, the, the Asian... Uh, community has their own sort of media awards sh- uh, celebration, basically. And so we were invited to go to that. So we went down. I'd never been to L.A. before. Um, staying at the Beverly Hilton, it was just like, wow. It, it, it was all these things and more. Uh, the red carpet was overwhelming. We're watching the show. And then during a break, this woman jumps in front of me and says, hi, Paul. Do you remember me? <laughs> and it's Deb. And I haven't seen her in like 26 years. So I'm like, Deb, oh, my God. Yes, of course. I. What are you doing here? That's I, I haven't seen you in forever. And she said, well, you remember that short film that you were in that you shot for me? And I said, yeah. She said, well, that got me into Columbia Film School. <laughs> and I learned to be a filmmaker. And she she became a director. And she was trying to direct some shows. And she did some shows in, in Canada. But it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't really doing that much for her. So she went to the States mm. and started directing shows like little, little tiny boutique shows like better call Saul fear of the walking dead, <laughs> Jessica Jones, you know, the little, tiny yeah, little ones. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and so I said, Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so happy for you. I said, well, you know, what are you, what are you doing here? She said, well, I'm, I'm actually directing a few episodes of the show called the Mandalorian. Mm. And I was like, oh, you probably oh, lost it just hearing God, the name. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a huge Star Wars. I'm like, are you kidding me? I had no idea. I love Star Wars. I, yeah. I'm so I'm speechless. And then she proceeds to drop another bomb on me. She says, I've been trying to get in touch with you because Dave Filoni, who is an executive producer and, and you know, co-writer on the show and a director on the show, he's a fan of Kim's Convenience. Oh, wow. And he was trying to write something for you in it. And I was like, I don't know if I can swear on this pod. I already swore a little bit, but I was just like, GTFO. It's like, are you kidding me? And I was just like, that's that's like somebody coming up to you and saying, here's the lottery, the winning lottery ticket. Enjoy your enjoy your five million bucks. Yeah. Like out of the blue. 
not expected. Sure. And so I immediately I grab her her elbow and it gets I got super intense because like shit got real. And I'm holding on to her and I said, You do realize I have like seven Star Wars cosplays at home. She's like, What? <laughs> and so I send her, she says, Send me the pictures. So I I, I scroll through my, my camera and I hurriedly send her all these pictures of the i'm a member of the 501st garrison in canada oh wow i was gonna ask if you had any affiliation with the 501 sounds like you do that's great i do and so like i've always wanted to be part of them and and some of the media outlets say that i'm a uh i'm a an honorary member no i earned my way in Mm. like i went and that's a point of pride like i built these costumes to exacting standards i got them judged i had to make changes to them just so i could get in so that's a point of pride I'm a member of the 501st. They do a lot of great charity work for, mm-hmm. for children's societies. Uh, and they're a really wonderful, generous group of people. Sure. Uh, anyway, so I, I send her these pics that, I, that I've got from my approved costumes and some of my unapproved costumes that I'm still building. And she's like, oh, my God. And she texts them to Filoni. And he responds, like, immediately. And he's like, wow, he could just wear his costumes to set. Right? <laughs> like, oh, please, 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 please. And so she says... Um, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, oh, I'm flying back to Canada. Yeah. She said, oh, no, because, you know, you should visit our set. I was like, can, I can visit this. I said, yeah, you should. You should come back. Like, I'm going to hold you to this. And so three weeks later, I flew back mm. to visit the set of The Mandalorian season one. Yeah. And so I went, and that was just a set visit. There was no talk about casting me or this or that. And I get it. Uh, in this business, too, people, they think about you and they go, hey, you know, I'm writing something. I have you in mind for it. And that's awesome. But nine times out of ten, it doesn't work out that way. It's a, it's a business, right? Sure. Because of people's schedules sure. or networks or producers. It, it happens. And But it's great to be thought of in, in that conversation. Oh, especially Dave, Dave Filoni, as far as I'm concerned, is currently the, the brain trust of what Star Wars is and can be. Uh, if there's anybody that should inherit it and 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 carry that mantle, I think that's the guy. Um, you know, obviously there's others around him that are making a lot of that possible, but he's got such a such a mind for this stuff, and to have him, uh, you know, pull point you out and say I want to get him on there somehow, you probably thought, well, okay, that's awesome, but it may not happen, but it that's- did happen. So how? <laughs> How, how did that pan out? Did it, was there a huge bunch of time where you're just like, ah, I'm probably not going to hear back. And then you heard back. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And I, I have to, before I be, keep going, I have to huge shout out to Dave's wife, Anne, because she is the one that got him onto Kim's convenience mm. at first. She's the one. And uh, so I owe Anne an, a huge, <laughs> huge debt of gratitude for, for allowing this, this fat Asian man who's living up in Canada, who's the biggest Star Wars nerd, uh, just, a chance to, to do, to, to live my dream. Um, and so what happened was I visit the set and I, you know, I see all these great things and I think I, I, this is wonderful. How lovely. And then Dave and Anne actually came and visited, uh, Canada, uh, that summer. And they visited the set of Kim's convenience. Oh, wow. And I was just like, you know, you go from, uh, uh, you know, a production that has millions and millions of dollars invested in it, in the technology, with the volume, in the size of the crews, with the sets and this and that. And then you come to our, our, our little Canadian sitcom, half hour sitcom uh, with, with a much smaller crew uh, and, and the sets. And I was just so honored to have them come in and visit. Uh, and then, you know, Deb kept saying, 
I was keeping in touch with her. She kept saying, you know, Dave's still trying to write something for you. Dave's. And I said, stop doing that. <laughs> and I keep saying to him, it's got to be bigger, Dave. It's got to be bigger. That's not big enough. I'm like, yeah. oh, Deb, come on. <laughs> um, so we flash forward to, uh, I think it was September. Last September of, of 2019. 19. Wow. Okay. And, uh, you know, it, it, we had, it was a big Earth Day march mm-hmm. where all the cities, there's a mass protest and, and we were out marching, uh, protesting climate change and wanting, you know, to affect change. And that was surreal because we're out there. The entire city shut down. We're doing this in a marching people recognizing me as, as Mr. Kim. And so it's very surreal. Yeah. And then I get a call from my agent and she says, uh, so, uh, Lucasfilm called and they want to know your availability <laughs> the next few months. <laughs> I'm getting nervous just hearing this. This is amazing. Yeah. I'm like, are you kidding? I say, I don't care. What I have to do, I will change it to do this. I will burn down bridges. I will cut down forests. Like it was, it got that bad. Like I, it was like, I I will do it. Um, And then before I knew it, I was on a plane flying out to Los Angeles uh, in, in October to shoot uh, episode four uh, directed by Carl Weathers. And I mean, that whole process, even getting there, because I didn't know what role I was playing. And I, I kept, I asked, I said, do you know what it is? And they use code names for all of it. And uh, my agent said, well, it's for something called the foodie pilot. Foodie pilot? What the <laughs> hell does that mean? Like, I don't care. I'll play it. Yeah, be a rock. It doesn't matter it. at this point. I mean, were you freaking yeah. out that partly that you knew that you were about to be directed by Apollo Creed himself? Like, that's freaky enough. Yeah, I had no idea about that until I landed in Los Angeles, right? <laughs> so, but that's the thing. And then, so here's the other story that I love telling. Is so I, I'm all over the place and I keep trying to, I'm pumping my agent for information to get her to pump Lucasfilm to say, what part am I playing? I just want to know so I can prep and can I get the line so I can prepare, do my job so I don't show up and go, oh, I don't know any of my dialogue and, you know, <laughs> embarrass myself. So she said, uh, Lucasfilm called back and said, well, uh, John Favreau and Dave Filoni, they, they want to be the ones to tell you personally. Mm. So they'll call you and they'll, they'll let you know what it is. I'm like, oh my God, John Favreau is going to call me. Oh man. And Dave, oh, okay. So we're having dinner one night and uh, it's KFC. <laughs> <laughs> I love Dirty Bird. It's one of my, don't judge me, but I'm, I'm, so I'm doling out the KFC and I'm about to sit down to a plate of fried chicken. And uh, <laughs> I noticed great. I missed a call. Yeah. I missed the first phone call from John Favreau because I was eating KFC. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> this is great. I called, I called back and it was a great, so surreal. Um, Cause you're talking on the phone, John Favreau. Yeah. I loved his, I followed his career, loved all the movies the, the movie that for me was, was swingers. Oh, yeah. That was my anthem mm-hmm. uh, in university. That and all the other work that he did after that, and he became a director, and all the fantastic work that he directed, and he just was this really down to earth guy that I met really briefly back in my set visit, and he's he's telling me about Captain Tiva, yeah, and you know he didn't have the full name yet; he was just named Carson in the script, but he was telling me about where he was coming from and how he saw the character. I was like, oh, that's so cool, yeah, and so I knew he was with the New Republic. Yeah, uh, they was giving Mando a hard time, and yeah. he was kind of like a traffic cop in yeah. that sense. So I was like, okay, I can work with that. Yeah, um, and then yeah, I go to the, I fly to Los Angeles, and that was like I felt like Cinderella at the ball, man. Like it all happened so fast. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I mean, and the and the experience there was it. Were you? I mean, there's probably 
I know there's a lot of stuff about their production that, that they keep kind of close to the vest, but that projection room stuff that they show off in the documentary bits I've seen, is that where you spend most of your time for all the shoots and stuff is like a big weird dome full of, full of projected unreal five engine content. Yeah, no, it's indoors. Right. And it's like the closest approximation I can give for people to, to sort of get it in their heads is, and I, and forgive me star Wars fans, but I'm going into Trek lore. It's like a holodeck. It really is. <laughs> You're in this round thing, and it is thousands of LEDs yeah. in a circle around you, but also on the ceiling. And if you look at any of the stuff in the gallery series for, for Mando, sure. uh, you see there's, there are all these black things that are, ring, that are in a ring around that thing. Those are actual cameras mm. as well. And they're tracking the physical camera that they're using to shoot the footage. And the camera itself has mocap balls on it. Right. So they're tracking wherever the camera is looking. And so they can alter the background so that you, you maintain that field of depth and the parallel or whatever the, those technical terms are sure. to make it look like you're actually there. It's um, breathtakingly cool. Oh. Like it feels like, it feels like um, it is a massive step in a new direction for this yeah. kind of production to the point that, once I realized what they were doing, and I didn't have any idea, it looked like a lot of on-set, like, oh, are they at the salt flats out here near me? Where are they doing this? And then you find out later, nah, this is all in this weird projection cave. And you go, okay, that's the future of all. Yeah. Anything to do with any kind of fantastical, any kind of background you need, we're yeah. done with matte paintings. I mean, to a degree. Yeah. We're done with you know all this kind of stuff. We are moving into a new phase. Jurassic Park level change is happening. Yeah on the set of Mando and it's just, ah, it's so rad. And I would, I mean, it's so funny because part of me is like, oh, you got to be in the Mandalorian. But also part of me is like, oh, Paul got to be in that cave. He got yeah. to see that stuff. And it's so cool. It's, um, I mean, and, and more so than, than actual locations too, it's, it's controllability of light. Yeah. That's the thing. Um, you know, they're going to save a ton in terms of not having to go out to a location and set all this stuff up, but they're also going to be able to control all the light and so that makes it look natural as well. And they can mm-hmm. control the reflections off of the Mandalorian's helmet. Um, all these little things that we take for granted that are really hard to reproduce with a green screen or yeah. a blue screen. Yeah. They can do, you know, in the moment. And the, the prediction really was, I remember for the longest time, the prediction was, oh, we'll get to a place where all the actors could be virtual. And right. maybe there's a day like that. I don't know. And there sort of is now. You can do a lot of interesting things with a lot of technology that will fake people out. But... What happened is the reverse. It's everything around the actors. And so you preserve that human sort of, you know, face in the midst of the drama. Yeah. But you artificial the world in a way that is so believable and so authentic. And, oh, man, I just think that is such a cool thing. I'm so excited for where it goes. And it's, obviously it's not cheap. We're talking about, you know, uh, the, the, the tip of, of the spear in terms of this new kind of tech and how it's being used in production. But cannot wait to see more of that yeah you know that's so rad and the volume that they used in season two is bigger than the mm. one in season one. Oh, interesting it was, yeah. yeah double the size I i'm guessing those just will end up getting bigger over time oh. like at some point I think they've already yeah i think they've already commissioned like a number of other builds like they're building more and more of them just because it is so versatile that's and so you cool. know they have they call it the you know uh the brain bar they yeah. are you have a, a, a small platoon of of tech people on the computers controlling every element of what's going on. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's yeah, it's it's an incredible thing. It's really something, but uh, but the magic to me is is that it doesn't take center stage. It disappears, and you don't think about it. 
um, so that you it's always about the story. Yeah, so it stays about the story. If the, if there's anything I love about the Favreau Filoni Star Wars touch, it's that they prioritize that. And yeah. and and yes, you've got the best toys and tools around it to make it happen to look right and to get the tone and everything, and the best sound work in the world, the best visual effects team in the world, like all that kind of stuff. But you've you've retained story. You earn every beat you have. <clears throat> the way that story ended this season, oh. from my perspective anyway, <clears throat> in any other unearned situation would have been cheese ball. But in this series, 100% earned. I got teary. My daughter cried for a half hour after we finished it. Like, that's not, that's the hard part. Like, all yeah. this tech and stuff is cool, but the hard part is selling that stuff, especially when you're dealing with multiple generations of Star Wars fans. And so as a fan who is yeah. also in the series. Uh, I'd love to just get your overall take. How did it go in Mando in, in your in your eyes? Well, I mean, the, for me, the, the series just got, the season just got better and better as it went on. Mm. And I know there was a lot of belly aching at the beginning about, oh, this is a filler episode or this or that. When you have an eight episode arc, yeah. nothing is filler. No, And I think, and that's the thing. I think people get really impatient and they're not used to watching, having to wait a week between episodes. If you binge it and you watch it, you kind of go, okay, they're layering in different story elements and characters or plot points at the beginning that you won't get if you just see it at, you know, as a one-off. You've got to put it all together. But that's the genius of the storytelling. So I love the character arcs. I loved everything that they're going on. And they're also laying groundwork for future seasons as well. Yeah. Right? That's, that's, that's called being efficient. And that's really intricate storytelling when you're, at, you're layering in things for season three or four or five. And you're just putting it in because you know they've got this this well planned out arc, which is really really cool to see. Um, I think, in terms of just the emotional aspect of the Mandalorian's journey and his relationship with Grogu, was as a parent seeing that. You know, Star Wars has always kind of been. I think I saw a meme about it about been about like deadbeat dads yeah. <laughs> or like single dads who are having difficulty and like Mando just sort of owns them all yeah. in terms of that. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's lovely. I saw, I just love that progression and, and how he changed and how the writing in, in terms of the story and bringing back Mayfeld and getting uh, Din to, to question what his beliefs were and how far he was willing to go and what it would cause for it, take him to sort of turn his back on an entire life of living a certain subset, uh, a certain way. I thought it was brilliant. And it was just so earned. And Pedro Pascal, man, hats off to him. So really, I mean, to have to act underneath a helmet for all that and how difficult that must have been, not only just, just in terms of the work itself, but the take the toll it takes as an actor to have people talking about your performance or no, it was a stunt double or this or that. And when he's putting in a lot of the work too, yeah, it's got to be difficult. And he just, when it came time for those moments, when that was so earned, when he finally took his helmet off in front of Grogu, if you weren't crying, you're dead inside. <laughs> like, honestly, like that was it. I was done. I was crying when Luke, when I saw that, that lightsaber flash up, I started to tear up. Oh, I, I lost um, my mind. I yeah. couldn't believe it. And again, it's, it's, you could, some people will say, oh man, what a big pile of fan service. But I didn't hear people say any of that because Again, it felt like everything they did in those final moments, that final episode, the entire second season, or first season for that matter, all of these moments, these beats felt earned. Yeah. Nobody was doing anything cheaply, and yeah. you didn't get that moment for nothing. And you also, 
because of the the, the his, history of Star Wars, there's so much that you think about it the minute it happens. You see that green lightsaber and you go, oh, wait, what does this mean? What does this mean? Because then I start jumping ahead. Well, what did Kylo Ren do? And wait, is Grogu okay in the future? And like, I got all these questions that are that are all just interwoven with all these years of Star Wars. And these guys just nailed it. And and all the while, I know that there's, you know, uh, people playing characters from the cartoon. Uh, they're from the Clone Wars. And everyone's just freaking out because she's there. And, and also, here's this other bit of fan service. But it's all weaving in so naturally that... I never once stopped and went, oh, man, they're just giving me what I want and not and not paying for it. They're paying for it with all of yeah. it. And I, my favorite little side thing is this. Pedro Pascal, amazing. Already loved him anyway. Amazing in this. And you're right about everything you said. But I love the concept that in Game of Thrones, where he played the Viper, he refused to wear a helmet. And in Mandalorian, he <laughs> refuses not to wear a helmet, at least most of the time. So... Kind of a funny juxtaposition there. Now, you mentioned something about him. You know, here's this adoptive father of Grogu showing real fatherly growth and, and, and protection and all these cool traits. Uh, as we wind things down in this interview, I did want to make sure to touch on this. You appear to be on, uh, by all accounts, one of those kinds of dads. You prioritize family. We read about it all the time. Uh, you coach, I think, baseball, a little baseball. Yeah, I'm an assistant coach, yeah. Yeah, assistant coach, which is pretty cool. Um, raising your own kids and that sort of thing. Do you find with this uptick in notoriety, especially around the Mandalorian and that sort of thing, that these particular parts of your career are presenting any kind of challenge with that busy schedule and trying to, to, to be there for your kids? Like what's that been like? I'm, I've been very fortunate. Hmm. Uh, my kids are older now. And so that, that, that helps tremendously. And they're, they're off doing their own thing too. I mean, pre-pandemic you know they had school and friends and, and places to go and things to do as well um and so i've always prioritized my family and i've never been gone for a, a longer period of time uh recently i mean when we're shooting kim's i'm lucky enough that i live five minutes from the studio so i get picked up and dropped off back home i'm home for most of it uh they see me around when i'm not working i'm down here in the basement either building props or you know just sort of geeking out and stuff. Um, and so like, I, I try to make sure I stay as engaged as I can with them. Uh, one of the things that I used to do before too, is like if, if a big tentpole movie would, would cut, was being dropped, I would go and I'd pull the kids from school and then we would play hooky and we'd watch it, you know, just the three of us. So we saw all the star Wars movies that way, for example, and all the, uh, the Avengers and Marvel's movie. I would like, it's dropping. It's a school day. Too bad. We're going to go see a movie because it's family time. Right. Yeah. And so that's that's important to me um, because I, I was lucky. My dad and I, when I was growing up, I helped him at the restaurant. So mm. he would he would take, you know, I was in grade two and he'd take me to the restaurant. And we, I'd help him open up the store and I'd clean the floors and I do all these little jobs. And he'd give me a dime and I'd go to the 7-Eleven. I'd grab a comic book and a paper for him. And we'd sit there in that half hour before the, the restaurant opened and he'd have his coffee and read his paper. And I'd sit there with my little cup of Coke and my comic book, and we would just sort of hang out. And I love that. Mm. I was very fortunate to have that. And I want my boys to have that too. Oh, that's and so I've always tried to stay as engaged as possible. Um, there have been periods, especially when Kim's was a play and we were on tour across the country, I'd be gone for four or five weeks at a time. But, and that made it hard. But it was always, we always tried to make sure that we had some time back home so that we weren't gone for the entire like six months in a row. Um, and I, you know, knock on wood, haven't been in that situation where I need to go someplace for an extended period of time. And if it were that case, 
then we'd have a long conversation about whether the family would come or not, because that's an important thing for me is, is to be with my family. Oh, that's awesome. I love hearing that. <clears throat> I have a similar uh, way I feel about things. And I, I noticed as I, you know, with my little monicum of, of weird sub internet fame, which is great because I don't get recognized in public or anything, but you know, it's, it's nice to have, I don't know. Internet, internet fame's nice because you don't have the, the throngs of, of people at a mall or whatever in normal times. Uh, you just kind of can go do what you want, but you still have this nice community that follows you and wants to know what you're doing. But I found that my kids thought I was way cooler as a result because I had this cool thing going on with video games and movies and all the stuff that I cover. And they just thought that was rad that their dad did that. So I felt like, especially during their high school years, I had an easy go of it. Did you feel like that at all? Like I'm this like cool guy with a, with a hit comedy show. And now I'm in the Mandalorian. Do they look at you and go now and go, Oh man, our dad is so much cooler than everyone else's dad. Or do you think there's really nothing to that when it comes to your own kids? I, I try to keep them grounded. I mean, they're proud. They love the fact that I'm on Mando uh, and, you know, on Kim's and stuff. They, they, they think it's really neat. But, you know, at the end of the day, too, I'm still just their dad. The guy that says no to video games at like <laughs> two in the morning. Uh, the guy that tells them to clean up their rooms and like, maybe you should walk the dog, dude, or take out the garbage or help your mom out a little bit more. I'm still that dude mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think when we're at home, it's sort of like uh, – <laughs> It's that familiarity breeding contempt. It's like, oh, dad, you're such, you know, you're, you're such an old man. You're so old fashioned. But that when they're out with their friends, is that, oh, yeah, my, my dad's on Mandalorian. <laughs> what does your dad do? Right? I, I think it's a little bit of that. Um, but I also try to keep them as humble as possible, too. Because yeah. it's like, you know, just it, I'm glad you're proud, but never, ever um, think you're better than somebody because your dad does a certain thing. It's it's never about that, and it, it's like I, I really try. I, I try to carry myself with with the amount of humility and groundedness, uh, which is why I keep saying I'm glad the success came really late in my career. Yeah, because I know what it's like to to grind it out and and to to be overlooked and to not get the roles that you want. And so this level of success has come to me where I'm the most grounded because mm. I know how fleeting it is, and I know how special it is when something like this happens. Because it couldn't, it, it could just as easily not have happened, yeah. and so I try to remain really, really humble about the stuff that happens. Because I'm, I've been extremely fortunate. I've worked my ass off, yeah. but I know people who are more talented, who've worked harder, and they haven't had that break yet. And so I'm, I'm, I try to distill that upon my kids as well, because you know they, they got to earn it too, and I don't want their heads to get too swollen. Yeah. Well, so everybody out there, all you need is you need a hit comedy, and then you need uh, Anne Filoni. Uh, Wait, is that her name? Anne? Yeah. Anne Condry. Anne Condry. That's right. She needs to find you and you're all set. We've got the formula for success here. Okay. One last question before we go. You've got this moniker I see on your Twitter account. You've got a website using it. Your hat right now is even referencing it. <laughs> bitter Asian dude. You don't seem bitter at all. So where's <laughs> Can I just get an idea of why that? Because it seems like the opposite of you. Yeah. You know, it was when, when I first joined Twitter, um, you know, you had to come up with something sort of like, ooh, something clever and fancy and something memorable. Sure. And in my youth, I was a very angry, bitter Asian dude. Mm. Um, and it was, in fact, I wanted an angry Asian dude. But then there's there's a guy, Phil Yu, in Los Angeles, and he's angry Asian man. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay, I can't do it. And people still get us confused, much to his chagrin. Um, and so I thought, bitter. Yeah, I was bitter because Gene at one point said I was like, I was like a lemon I was like a lemon off the streets, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. No, yellow on the outside, yellow on the inside, and bitter, bitter, bitter. <laughs> and so I went bitter Asian dude. And I thought, you know what? People will 
you'll remember it at the very least. Yeah. And um, yeah, but in my youth, yeah, I used to, I used to, I used to be the worst when it comes to complaining about how it wasn't fair and like this and that. Like I was, that's why I'm glad. Like if I had success when I was younger, I probably would have been a big asshole yeah. about it. Right. So I, I think this is something to this. Like, and there's nothing, hmm, that's interesting. And hanging on to the moniker is interesting too, because it's almost like it's a way of remembering your, when you were maybe in a less appreciative state. And yeah. that, and that's an okay thing to keep in the back of your mind because it'll it'll give you better perspective about how you're how you are now. And this is interesting. I really relate to that now that I think about yeah. it. I'm glad I asked that question. I thought it'd be something like, "Oh, I just don't like coffee because it's too bitter" or something like that. I didn't <laughs> didn't know what to expect, but instead, that's interesting because I, I think you you have the pattern right. Get rid of it in your youth. Get all that angst out, and yeah. then you know now you're a dad and you're you're finding some cool success and you're having all these rad experiences. And you've got that grounding you're talking about. I think that's the right pattern. We should all strive for something like that. Don't be bitter in your old age is what we're saying, everybody. <laughs> not that we're old. Okay. I'm not saying me <laughs> or Paul are that old because we're not. All right. Uh, well, this has been amazing. I, I've, I've really loved chatting with you. And um, I just am so excited for your success and can't wait to see uh, what you do next. I know you probably can't speak to any uh, things that may or may not be happening in the future, at least too much. But I know we can expect some new Kim's episodes coming um, That's right. Very excited about that. Excited to see anything that may come out of the Mando appearances. Is there anything that you've got going on right now that you do want to let people know about, promote, anything going on? Uh, January 19th, Season 5 of Kim's Convenience is premiering in Canada on CBC and CBC Gem. That's their streaming app. If you're anywhere outside of Canada, I'm sorry, you're out of luck. You're going to have to wait to get it legally. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to wait to get it legally outside of Canada. You're but if wrong. you're in Canada, you can get it on CBC Gem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, I got a couple of other things in the pipe. I can't really talk about them, though, because mm. they haven't been announced yet, but they mm. will be soon, which is great. Um, if you're into YouTube videos, I've got a YouTube channel, Bitter Asian Dude Inc., where I try to do the uh, the geeky thing and do some unboxings and, and videos about fun things that I have in my basement. It all started off because of the pandemic. I have all these collectibles sitting in boxes and my youngest said, why don't you do some unboxing videos? And so that's where it came from. And you can see, I've got this hat right here. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying the merch line and we did a soft release and we sold out, which is great. So we've got fantastic hats and hoodies and listen for an announcement coming soon. Ah, very nice. Well, again, uh, my pleasure. Uh, it was all my pleasure having you on here. Bitter Asian dude on Twitter. Follow him there. He's also a good follow. And uh, have a fantastic rest of the holidays, man. And I hope that you and yours uh, are well. Thanks again for being here. Thank you so much, Scott. I love this. It, the best times are when you just feel like you're talking with old friends. And that's, this is what this felt like. On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.